All right, thanks, guys, and good morning, everybody. Welcome again to our church. Uh, as Spencer said earlier, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and really glad to have you all with us today, especially for visiting. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, we're going to dive right in back, back in to our series in the Song of Solomon here. I took a break last week. Uh, if you weren't here for that, Kevin uh, Osell, our church planning resident here, who's going to plant a new church in Fridley, Minnesota this fall. He's been a part of Hiawatha for about a year and a half as a resident and intern, kind of in training, pastoral intern, and then more specifically, or, uh, we call them residents or church planting residents here is going to leave us uh, with his wife, Casey, and their kids uh, sometime in the summer, I think, to kind of start to move out there. Well, he's already there, but to kind of move away from Hiawatha and start that church, and then uh, especially in October when they officially launch. Um, if you weren't here, I encourage you guys to listen to that sermon online, or just better yet, talk to Kevin, who I don't think is here yet. Uh, maybe next service he will be, but if you don't know him, just look up, because he's like the tallest guy in the world, <laughs> at least to here at the church. He's got the Hiawatha world record, I guess, for height here, but... Um, talk to him or his wife, one of our overseers, at least give you a better sense for one of, one of our big values as a church is church planting. We want to be a part of doing that, whether that's just funding church plants or helping assess the uh, fitness for church planting for uh, different individuals come to our uh, door or here in the city that, that, that want us to do that, assess and, and coaching, that kind of thing, or best yet, send some of our own people to do that, which is what we're going to do this fall. Did last August as well, sent uh, Mike and Nicole Devereaux to Brooklyn, New York to plant there, which they are being called uh, to a different state. We want to especially do that here in the Twin Cities, if that's what God has for us. Uh, but it uh, just so happened that Mike and Nicole were called to um, different states, so it's great to want to be part of that as well. And we have global uh, church planting people, too, uh, that we support who are heavily involved with the local church in different countries uh, as well. But in any case, it'll give you a better sense for what we're about, really, as one of the major things we're about here as a church, if you want to listen to that, highly encourage you to do that or, or talk to us. But we're going to dive right in, though, with that said, back into our series in the Song of Solomon. So we're in this today, next week, a break for Easter. Uh, we'll preach an Easter-specific sermon uh, from a different <clears throat> book of the Bible. Then back in song, I think, for a few more weeks, we'll finish up in, in early May. Uh, but we're just crossing the halfway point here in this series. <clears throat> Calling today, I called him, <clears throat> but he gave no answer. From Song 5, 2 to 6, 3, a little bit longer passage today, but kind of one main idea, which is why we're going a little bit longer. But uh, continuing today, though, which uh, if you don't know what Song of Solomon is, it's an Old Testament love poem written by King Solomon, son of David, around 960 B.C., give or take a few years. Uh, again, we're in chapter 5 today, and it's basically a love dialogue or a love story that, uh, that consists of th this uh, love. It's a story, but a dialogue primarily po poetically between a man and a woman going from their singleness, kind of, but really their engagement to anticipating the wedding, their wedding night. Talked about consummation and sex uh, or two weeks ago, and uh, tonight or today is um, post all of that. And then we're going to kind of go into the early days or stages of their, poetically speaking, their uh, relationship. And so um, we're going to enter into what's uh, really constituting as the second dream sequence. So if you weren't here a few weeks back, we, we looked at this first dream that the woman has. So it's, it's poetry. It's a genre that we have to kind of step back and understand this is heavily symbolic. And then you add a dream to that. It's kind of like a few weeks ago, I talked about Inception. If you've seen that movie, it's kind of like layered dreams, which is kind of, it just get crazier and weirder the deeper you go. So you add dream onto poetry and you just got craziness. You just got to step back and get out of your literal mindset for a bit and, and just understand this is something God is suggesting and teaching and portraying to us. It's all about Jesus and the gospel and himself and spiritual stuff, content, but through the genre and lens of uh, poetry. And again, on top of that, a, a dream sequence. So she is dreaming, this time about separation with a hint of conflict. So that was a case a couple of weeks ago as well. Uh, she, they, they were separated, and, and it's not always a bad thing. You're, you're separated from your from your fiancé just by space sometimes, you might live in different states, or just the fact that you're not married yet is kind of this mini antagonist in your own story with your fiancé because you want to be together. You want to just be super close emotionally and also sexually and otherwise. Friendship-wise, you want to become better friends. You just really love this person. You want to be close to them. The fact that you aren't that kind of becomes this bridge or chasm that you want to cross. And so that's already happened, but now post-wedding and post-wedding night, she's dreaming again about this at least perceived we don't know if it's literal or not. Remember, it's poetry here, so we can, it's impossible to know whether it's actual separation or this perceived emotional separation that she's dreaming about here. But in, in either sense, it's something real. Because dreams do that, right? Whether it's something uh, 
you know, it's, it's a threat in our life or a concern or a fear, dreams symbolically portray reality. Some of you guys might dream very vividly and, and you write those down or something. Or my, my daughter just bought a dream journal, which is kind of cool because she dreams pretty, apparently pretty vividly and she wanted to write these things <clears throat> down. It's this way overpriced thing at Barnes & Noble. I'm just like, just get a notebook, you know? Somebody thought, I'm just going to publish this thing and make a ton of money and to like make it all fancy, but just buy a notebook. But anyway, but I thought it was kind of cool because I, I also dream, well, not every night, but really vividly to the point where I feel like God speaks to me at times and I'll write these things down so I remember them. And, but whether you, whether you experience that or not, people dream. And it's usually whether you're dreaming a literal thing that flows from what you're dealing with in your life or whether it's symbolic, uh, they, they can uh, point to that and give us insight into what's going on in our life and our psyche and, and, uh, and so forth. So, but anyway, remember how we're approaching the book, though. If you're new to this book or the Bible or a church, uh, as I talked about before, we have to read this symbolically. It's Old Testament literature, it's poetry, and it's a dream. It's like three layers of, if you're, you're trying to approach this literally, you'll get nowhere. You'll spin your tires. And, uh, and the fourth layer, actually, is that whenever God talks about marriage, he's always talking about himself biblically. You never get this sense in the Bible or, you know, sense or just literal statement uh, that, that God says, here's a healthy marriage, but I have nothing to do with it. You never get that. Biblically. It's always, here's a healthy marriage, and I'm very involved with it. In fact, I've intended it and created it to tell you something about me. And so if that's the case as well, it's kind of this fourth layer of you must read this spiritually and prophetically as though it's anticipating something. Later in the story, it's going to be much more grandiose related to it, but, uh, but it's going to fulfill it. God's promising this type of love to come into the world. He's promising it through the lens of this Old Testament love poem. And Christ, as 2 Corinthians 1 says, is the one who brings a yes to all the promises of God in the Old Testament. So, this is, so Christ is like the yes to Song of Solomon. If, if, you're, if you're reading this book, if you live during this time or even now, if you read the Bible cover to cover or something like that, or we just read it, and we ask, well, how can this love be, how can this type of divine love be possible? Christ is the yes to that, to that question. So have that in mind. Where is Jesus, his gospel, the love of God? How is his character anticipated in this book? How is he like Solomon, the groom, and how are we like uh, the, the bride? So I'm going to read it in full to begin. Song 5, 2 to 6, 3. Follow along on screen. I can only get like the first eight verses in your sermon inserts, so sorry about that. <laughs> if you want to pick up a pew Bible, I put the pew Bible page number there, or your own Bibles, follow along, or a lot of this will be on screen here. Uh, well, actually all the passage, but later on most of today on screen too. But verse 2. I slept, she, she's speaking, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love. And just stop there for one second. Two weeks ago, uh, he mentions that she is uh, his sister, speaks of her as a sister as well. Don't get hung up on that. It's simply a term of endearment. This, this is not by any stretch incestuous love here or anything. It's not literally a sister. It's a term of endearment. It's, it's meant to be to suggest that she is super, super, super dear to her and close to, to him and close to him. So open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed, within me, failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, 
choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. All right, so as we've framed this series so far, and I talked about this before, but not quite in these terms, so there's a lot of times in, in poetry like this or other genres of the Bible, a, a human side, what principles, in this case, about marriage and relationships can we glean from, from a passage like this, which I'll weave in here a little bit. A lot of our past sermons have been a little bit more 50-50 with that. Today, however, is going to be a little bit more heavily weighted towards the divine side. So the divine side is, where's Christ here? And how does this help tell a story that's bigger than the story it's telling? How is it helping to tell a greater biblical story here that pertains more to God and his love for his people, specifically the church? So how does it then portray different symbolic layers that, su- that, that suggest what our relationship with him is really all about. And what, what is the, the thing that comes in between us? What is the mediator here? Uh, what is God really up to? How is his love in, in focus? So, and, and to address that, and that's a huge question, which we're not going to fully answer today. But as you do that, I think what this passage gets at more than others in the Song of Solomon is there's a lot of layers here that relate, but they don't necessarily relate in a one-to-one correlative level with the New Testament realities that there are shadows of. And so we go through these, you'll see if one of these really strikes home, that's great. Maybe they all will. But there are three different things here that you can come at and say, well, if you think they relate fully, you'll say, well, how does that third one relate to the first one? They seem to kind of contradict. Don't think of it that way. Kind of step back. Poetry, dream, inception, Old Testament literature. Just kind of approach it from that angle first and then you kind of step back and say, okay, these are things that the poetically God is suggesting to us from a number of different angles, not just one. So have that in mind or else a lot of this won't uh, really make a lot of at least relative sense. All right, so the first layer here is that Song 5 with the whole book helps tell the greater redemptive historical story poetically. And so as we said a few weeks back, there is traditional Jewish precedent for this as well in terms of how they read this uh, and, and read currently this book, but more importantly than that, a, a Christian biblical precedent for this too. And it's based on this idea, as I suggested earlier, Ephesians 5.32 says marriage refers to Christ and the church. Like a husband moves towards a wife and dies for her, so does Christ move towards and die for the ultimate bride, spiritually speaking, which is a Christian or the, the gathered church from all time, from all tribes, tongues, and nations. But this layer on on top here, number one, builds on this simpler truth to actually being a a more comprehensive poetic sampling of the entire biblical storyline. This is one element of it, but it's more than that as well. So to explain this in in chart form, I love charts, hopefully some of you guys do too, or this is going to be painful because Song of Solomon just, just gives itself to charts. But anyway... Song of Solomon on the left here, basically this is what Song of Solomon is, is about, the left column. It's about a couple being single, they're separated, they're alone. It moves towards anticipation and engagement, longing to be married, have sex, to become more emotionally close, all of that. It moves towards their wedding and the consummation of that relationship. They have sex, which is a couple weeks ago. The row we're on here now is this post-wedding partial separation. She's dreaming, but she's dreaming about being separated and kind of a hint towards conflict uh, on one level as well. And then the book ends. We'll start to get into the second, this last row here, the secondary consummation next week, but the whole rest of the book is about that secondary consummation, or you could think of it as makeup sex. We'll talk about that uh, next week. Actually, uh, after Easter, which they have a, sec- a secondary consummation, which is this, and it ends on that note. Uh, no more con that, no more con that ends on this really high note of uh, reuniting for good, I put there as a question mark, I think that's partly what it's, it's getting at. On the, the, the greater biblical storyline here, though, is really all of this just in a more heightened cosmic spiritual level. And so, if you don't know what the Bible's about, or even if you do, just to remind you, uh, the Bible is really about this on the right, the right column. It's, it's about human beings sinning against and rebelling against God and earning exile from his presence because of that sin. So, so closeness to God and, or being far away from him is a key part of the biblical storyline. Proximity, 
We can't enter his presence because of our sin. In the beginning, though, there was no separation. Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, they were close to him. They talked with him. They walked with him. It was, things were just euphoric and perfect in that regard because he was all they needed. But they sinned. They rebelled. They thought they were their own gods or they wanted to be. They listened to the lie of the snake and they were exiled from his presence. But God, because of his, his goodness and his love and his commitment to creation, stayed committed. And he prophetically promised a time of salvation in the future, which is the whole of the Old Testament, you could say. Christ then comes on the heels of that being that ultimate yes to all the promises. When God says, I promise to to undo the curse and and to bring people back into the garden of my presence again, he gives many, many forms of that promise, but it's it's comprehensive. It's all all of the Old Testament in one sense of, of the word. But Christ is that final yes. And not just the man Christ, but his death and resurrection, his husband like love. We talked about that two weeks ago, too, how. The Bible correlates sex between a man and a woman uh, to the one flesh that, that that is between a man and a woman and being one spirit, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about this, being one spirit with the Lord. So God is, this is what the Bible is about. It's not just <clears throat> washing our sins, but ending the separation that exists between us and him. That's what we earned. Is to, we are not where God is. And so Christ, by erasing sin and death, brings us not just near, though that's true, brings us actually into God, brings us so close that we, that, that the, in, in one sense the Bible says that the best physical picture of this you can get in this life is intercourse, is sex. That, that's the best physical picture that you can get in this life. And that's not the ultimate one, it's just a shadow of that reality, but spiritually that's really how close that, that sinners become to God, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, after their sins are erased by Christ and death is overwhelmed and pushed back, which we especially celebrate this weekend in Holy Week. After that, however, for 40 days after Jesus rises again, second to last row here, Jesus uh, speaks to his disciples and he appears to hundreds at one time and he teaches, he talks about the Old Testament, how it was all about him all along. Then he ascends into heaven and there's angels there and, and they say that, that don't gaze too long, just be concerned about your ministry in the present because he's going to come back uh, before you know it. And that's actually what we still, uh, at this day, the church age we long for is his second consummative act of salvation, his, his second coming. So again, the song then on the left, the left column, the Song of Solomon corresponds poetically to the whole biblical storyline uh, on the right, what we call the redemptive historical timeline. Two consummative acts is one of the key things to see here. There's two. So like in Song of Solomon, there's two moments of sex, uh, at least as it's poetically recorded, two consummative acts. There are two consummative acts of salvation in the, in the Bible as well, or New Testament, you could say, two advents of Jesus Christ, two arrivals of God into the world. The first, when he's born and he dies on a cross for our sins and rises again, and the second one, which we still eagerly wait for as the church, his second coming, his second arrival, where he'll fully right all wrongs uh, and usher in the new heaven and new earth where his church will walk fully like Adam and Eve did in the garden in the beginning, walk fully with him perfectly without any barrier in between, and we'll see clearly uh, on that day. We pray it would hasten, that he would hasten it. So, where does this leave us now in history? Uh, Just to be clear, I mentioned this, but this yellow line here, that's where we are now, in this time of perceived and partial separation from Christ, from God. So after Jesus consummates salvation by dying on a cross for our sins, he ascends, Acts 1 talks about that. I mentioned, I I paraphrased it earlier. Ushers in this new era of the Spirit where the church would be built up on his gospel. The nations would be brought in through her ministry. And so then, and we still long for that second arrival, which then leaves us in this really amazing and salvific and adventurous and exciting but strange and kind of frustrating time of history as well where Jesus is very present with us yet not physically so until his return. We call this the already, not yet aspect of God's kingdom. It's already here, really in full, but not yet fully at the same time. It's a tension. It's a paradox. You can't fully understand how that's the case unless you actually are a Christian for a day. You can actually kind of feel that, you know. We can all experience this, but on a logical level or a philosophical one, it's really hard. There's a tension there between something being fully here, but yet not fully yet at, at the same time. So in other words, sin is completely wiped away on the cross. And yet it kind of remains in our souls for a time as well. As the new enters in, the old is fading, it's still clinging like a disease to our DNA for a time as well until he returns. 
Jesus is here, yet he's not fully again. Salvation's finished at the cross, and yet not fully until he returns again. We have a new self, but our old self still remains. The enemy is defeated, but not destroyed. And this actually explains, this is really helpful to get, by the way, too, if you're, uh, you could be, I guess, a Christian for, you know, 50 years, too, but especially for a younger Christian that doesn't fully comprehend these things yet as you're growing in this, it's a really helpful thing that, to explain how you can feel so incredibly close to God and yet so, and so definitively saved one day, yet so incredibly far away from him another day. I mean, who hasn't had that experience, right, as a Christian? But the Bible explains how this can be the case. We actually want to have that kind of culture here with how we sing and how we teach and how we talk to each other as a church as well because this is just reality. We're in the already not yet. It's okay to feel distant from him even though you aren't. It's okay to wrestle with sin even though you're perfect in his eyes because you have faith in him, you trust him to be redeemed. That's, that's, just, that's reality. That's, that's exactly what we should experience actually at, at the same time. So again, so victorious over sin yet so defeated at the same time. It's actually it's similar here to how the woman in Song of Solomon married to him and you can't have a closer relationship with a human being in this life than marriage. So married to Solomon feels distant at the same time through her dream. So it's the same storyline. In chapter 5, verse 6, she even says, I called him, but he gave no answer. And what married couple can't experience that <laughs> on some level? I called out, whether it's literally or figuratively or emotionally, I didn't really get an answer. I didn't feel like that, you know, that response wasn't what I expected. Or I feel this dream, literal, whatever level you want to think about it, I feel this tension of, of separation. Relatedly, again, have you ever felt this on a spiritual level with God? What Christian hasn't felt like God has not answered their prayers before? Or like he's not there? I'm talking to a wall. It's, it's the same storyline. God is... He always answers prayer, but it's this perceived separation. We think we're farther away than we are. Jesus says, I, I'm, I can't be closer. I, I'm inside you. That's how close I am by my spirit. And I will never leave you, but we have this because we can't see him yet until he arrives for the second time and fully and final and eternally. We have this perceived separation sometimes, this, this old creation kind of way, this oldness in us that's still kind of clinging that makes us feel those things. I call to God, but... He gave no answer. This is very psalmic in a way, too. A lot of the psalms talk in this language, too, about crying out to God, but where are you? Where, haven't you seen my distress and, and my enemies surround me? Where are you? I called to you day and night, but, uh, but, you, didn't, but you didn't answer. Same storyline. It's, it's kind of like we say about our song, that all the secular songs we've done up here for a few, uh, we kind of joked, is it about a girl or God, you know, kind of thing, right? It's, I forgot. The last few songs we've done that have been secular ones, this one too, I think, would probably apply, the, the Cure song. But for a Christian, that, that should, we should just say, well, it's both. You know? it's a, we should have this tension. Well, it's kind of both because God says it's both. Uh, marriages refer to his love for his people. So there's going to be that kind of correlative thing with our marital stories or relationship stories in general and God's uh, to us, which you see here in, in the chart I showed earlier in some of these passages. So then the question becomes, I want to address this a little bit topically here today, is this idea of feeling distant from God. What do you do when this occurs? What do you do? And just think about that for a second. When that happens, speaking to Christians, when you're not distant from him, but you feel distant, what do you do? Where do you go? What do you think? What do you, who do you talk to? And as we ask it that way, and Song of Solomon is not going to get comprehensive here, but it actually does give answers to that when we ask, well, what does she do? When she feels distant in her dream, uh, what, what does she do in the dream? And what does God say to us about what we should do on a spiritual level when we feel distant from our Christ, our spiritual husband? We see this resolve. This is actually a really healthy relationship here. Uh, conflict happens in all relationships, but this is a really healthy resolution here. And what she does or even doesn't do in one sense, we'll talk about that, uh, is very helpful. So what do we learn? Two big things here. Uh, the first is a, a repeat of a few weeks ago that I'll just recap today, but if you weren't here, I point you back to chapter 3 uh, to listen to uh, our sermons on chapter, uh, chapter 3, 1 to 5, I think, was the sermon on um, this matter. But the, the concept here you see here, dream about again, is going past the law to love. Uh, chapter 5, verse 7 says that the watchman, this is actually a heightened 
picture of the watchman on the wall in the city in Jerusalem and what they do to her because in her former dream they weren't this brutal. But in verse 7 it says, The watchmen found me as they went about in the city in Jerusalem. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil. So very abusive for those watchmen on the walls. Now again, we're not going to go back into this in full today. It was a major theme in chapter 3. But remember, if you were, if you weren't, hear this for the first time. The city here, as we read this symbolically and use the Bible to help us interpret it, the city symbolizes, Jerusalem does, biblically, the Old Testament law. And we get this on a number of levels, but in the New Testament in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, if you want to read more on that, Paul says, present-day Jerusalem refers to Mount Sinai, which is where God gave Israel the law, the Ten Commandments and, and related do's and don'ts. He covenanted with them in that old manner, that former manner, on Mount Sinai. So as we read that principle, that greater theological thematic thread into this story, which we should, we see the same thing. The city, the watchman, refer to Old Testament law. And so if that's the case, then the fact that she, as she goes out to find her love, as she has this separation from him, as she goes out to seek him again, to be close to him, the fact that she not only cannot find her love in the city amongst the watchmen, but that she's beaten there reminds us that the law, and this is a, a greater New Testament teaching, but it's also Old Testament too, the law is not associated with love. It kills us. It beats us. It cannot save. You know, to hold up a sign to someone and say, do this or else, do this or be cursed, is at odds with love. Do this or else you cannot be in my presence is at odds with love. And God, God is right to do that because he's just. And we also know, this would be very bad news, by the way. If this is the way the Bible ended and God would be still right and just to do this, there's no gospel there. Try harder, be more righteous, be a better person, don't think about evil things for the rest of your life, and then you can be in my presence. It's a condition, there's conditionalness to that in the Old Testament that is at odds with love. And on one hand, there's a, there's, there's a lot of purposes to the law in the Old Testament, but one of, one of which that we talk a lot about here at the church, because the Bible does, is it was, it was to say to Israel and the world watching that you're not good enough on your own. You cannot draw near to God. It's impossible. If you get too close, you'll die. People did. They got too close to God in the temple, and because they had sin inside their hearts and minds and bodies, they just perished. They died. And so the Old Covenant was very condemning. It was a damning thing. God was kind of drawing close, but also saying, stay away because you're, I'm too holy and you're too sinful. Here's a law to try to keep to realize that you need me, not yourselves, to, to earn salvation. So to read this then, this whole storyline into the song, is to say that salvation then is found somewhere else. Where do we find God? Where do we find wholeness? Where do we find love? Where do we find getting back to God, that theme? The answer is not in the city, outside the city. In other words, not in the law, not in the commandments, not in doing good, but going outside to where Solomon is, in, the gar in this case, the garden, or somewhere just, just not in the city. Thematically speaking, remember, Dream-wise, Old Testament poetry-wise, biblical theology-wise, lots of symbolic layers here, but still clear to say that salvation's found. And here it's a promise. It's a looking ahead. It's written into the Old Testament storyline to say a new way is coming that won't be based on what you do, but rather based on what God does to save. So it's found in Christ, not in law. There's, there is a, a, a bit of a contradiction there or a butting of heads. That's intentional. God's doing that to get us to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the power of sin is the law. In other words, sin, your enemy, uses like the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, to beat you into a bloody pulp. That's the imagery here. The power of sin, the weapon of sin, though the laws do not commit adultery, do not worship other gods, good things, right? But because we can't keep them, Sin uses it like a bat or a machine gun to just kill us day after day after day after day. And so what I think this, this is just good gospel stuff as it is to remind us to go to the cross, not to ourselves, not to law. But what it does with this greater theme of when you feel distant from God, as it says, think about this. Don't go to law. Don't go to yourself. Don't go to religion Go to Christ. And, I, and I'm saying this, oh my gosh, not just from the scriptures, but 
by experience, day after day after day. I was telling someone uh, last week, actually, some of you guys know I had a sabbatical last year, and I felt like I've known this stuff for, I preach this stuff every week, literally, pretty much, and known this for a long time, but by experience, I felt like one of my major things with God when I feel distant from him is that I think about him more as a boss than a father. And I think when that happens, I feel very distant because who's close to their boss? You know, it's like, no one. Maybe some exceptions out there for like one of you, but no one's really close to their boss. I mean, like maybe he's kind of a nice guy, but it's mostly our relationship's defined by how well I work. He gives me raises, uh, she gives me demotions, whatever it is, but your relationship with your boss is, is based on your moral effort. But the Bible says that's precisely what God is not. He is not he's, you're not his servants ultimately. You're not, you're not just doing things for him. He's doing things for you. He's like a spiritual husband. He's like a spiritual father. And so this is very deeply, deeply practical on multiple levels, just what it means to be saved, but also what do you do when you feel distant from him? I can guarantee you guys, if you've never thought about this before, if you're feeling distant, you're probably thinking more like a moralist than you are a Christian. I guarantee it's part of the problem. Not the whole problem, but I promise you it's part of the problem. It's, it's a byproduct of not thinking deeply and drinking deeply of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is more about love and his love for you than about what you can do for him. You'll never be happy in the latter, but you'll be deeply joy-filled in, in the former. A bad theology of God will hurt you emotionally. What you think about God is huge. And if you don't understand him right or what the cross meant right, you will be a very depressed person. You just will, because you'll be full of yourself. And no one's happy when they're full of themselves. You'll, you'll always feel like, have I done enough? Have I measured up? Have I prayed enough? Have I gone to church enough? Have I read enough? Have I done, not done adultery enough in this life? But the Bible's saying, stop it. God raises the dead. He's not saying, you're a pretty good person. Try to be a better person. He's saying, I raise the dead. I call into life things that weren't. I, by grace, save you. You're not saved by works. You're saved by me making it so calling into the tomb and saying, arise into new life. And then he weds you to himself. So there's no more separation. So, so why act as though there is? It is the reminder that we need to give to, to ourselves in the context of community on a regular, regular basis. So, that, so one other question, and I'll leave it here with, before I go to the second thing, is, is do not lie or do not commit adultery or do not worship other gods the center of your Christian faith? And if it is, why? Why? What verse do you have to support that? that? That should not be the case. The center of your faith should be, I am an evil person who's saved by a good God and loved by him dearly. Your, the center of your faith should be a bloody cross, not the cold stone tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, which could never soften the heart. If that's the center of your Christian faith, you're no different from a Buddhist or a Muslim or a really moral pagan just trying to be a good person in this life. What makes you distinct? What should make you distinct, Christian, and if you're not a Christian, pre-Christian, as you come to faith, what makes you distinct is you believe in a God who came to earth to become like you, to die for you. And the sense, why we crosses around our neck or tattoo him on our forearms. The center of our faith is a cross, not a ladder up to heaven that we climb through a moral effort. It's, it's a cross to say that we could not get there, so God had to come down here and get beaten to a bloody pulp, torn to pieces for us, that, we might, that he might absorb our sin, take it away, and we can walk away free. That's love. That's the center of the faith. That's what we need to think about when we feel distant from him, as she is, realizing this in her dream. The law beats me. The Ten Commandments beat me, but as I go outside the city to the garden where my love is, closeness, salvation, love. All right, second thing is go, well, first is go past the law to love. The second is remind, this is movement into the second one. I talked about it, but remind yourself that you love him and he loves you. This is what she does. And that life without him is an absolute nightmare. 5.8 says, I'm sick with love. She's reminding herself of this. This is, this is uh, like a, a lonely husband or wife longing for his or her spouse through some kind of separation that they're going through by maybe looking at wedding pictures or something and saying, oh, what a day that was, or 
I, I, we had this uh, experience last week. We got our wedding pictures out. We were pre-digital photography. That's how you know, old we are, I guess, now. But it was right on the cusp. The guy literally said, I'm going digital. If, if I do, all your proofs will be free. If, it's, if, if you don't, $2,000. Like, what? It's a little bit different, you know? Like, try to speed up the digital. But he didn't, so it cost us an arm and a leg. Anyway, really good pictures, and it tells a story. And we looked at them again. And I just, it, just reminds, it just reminds us of our love for each other. I remember just thinking, my wife is incredibly beautiful, and I, I love her. I loved her then. I love her more now. And it just kind of makes you long for her in that day or just future days, future anniversaries, the present all over again. It's kind of like what's going on here. She's reminding herself of her, her husband, her love. It's motivation to love afresh. And remember, in the same manner, Christians are people of remembrance, if you think, what should I do on a daily basis as a Christian? If remembering is not at the top, something's wrong. It's one of the primary things the people of God do all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. We remember. Communion remembers. Baptism remembers. Preaching points back to something. It's not creating something novel that we gather around. It's reminding ourselves of something that we just forget almost instantaneously when we stop hearing it. We're people of remembrance. So look at what 1 Corinthians 15 says. For example... In the New Testament, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which, look at what he says, speaking to the church, you received, past tense, in which you currently stand and by which you are being saved. So what he's not saying is, you already know this, so I'm going to go on to something else. He's saying, no, it's no trouble for me to remind you of these. And Peter says elsewhere in the New Testament, it's right for me to stir you up by way of remembrance, to stir you up to the things that you believe but kind of forget and you're starting to live contrary to, reminding you that it's not about you. It's about God. Stir you up in, into these things. Look at how particular her thoughts are as well in uh, verses 10 to 16. She gets very particular. She reminds herself, this is really important, look at how she reminds herself of him. She reminds herself of his body. She reminds herself of his body and related uh, character, but mostly just describing parts of his body. In a similar way, just on a higher spiritual level, this is exactly what Christians do. Exactly, right? How precious is the body of Christ to us? So, for, for example, she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. Ruddy means uh, flushed with red color, and it's a euphemism for being bloody, actually, as well, in some forms of the word. So, she says that, but we say, on a greater level, our Christ is more than radiant. He's the light of the world. And he became ruddy for us on a cross when in his love for us, he died for our sins. She says his arms are rods of gold, but we say our Savior's arms, though nailed to a cross, were stretched out in love to fully embrace the sins of the world. Much better arms. She says his body is polished ivory, but we say, the church says, our Christ's body is bruised, broken, and bloodied, ripped and torn to shreds, but more beautiful than all the ivories and sapphires of the world. And then our focus turns, not just to seeing the cross, but to seeing what becomes the body of Christ in the world, which is the church. The church, gathered Christians, are called the body of Christ. And so then, again, under the umbrella of where do we go, what do we do when we're feeling distant from God? We adore the body of Christ, i.e., we adore the church. If you're alone, you're much more likely to feel distant from God than you are in a healthy gospel-preaching, Jesus-valuing, Bible-talking-about church. You'll still have it. We all will, but much less likely so. In fact, it's impossible to be a Christian and not love the church, the Bible says. The Bible says in the New Testament in 1 John, it says, we know that we're saved, we know that we're of the brothers, we know we're of the church, we know we're truly saved, because we love the church. So if you don't love the church deeply, love the community of God, you're not a Christian. It's, it's impossible. And God, God just does this in us. We have to be a part of the body of Christ. We are when we believe, and we're a part of that communally as well. Huge practical help. We could talk all day about that one, but just a passing thing here on adoring the body is to adore the church. Be with him at the cross and be with his people as they adore the cross and remember the cross. Finally, many things here, but just four today. She says here, the fourth thing is, this is my friend, my beloved, but the church says, Jesus, friend of sinners. Praise God, he's a friend of sinners. It doesn't say, Jesus, friend of really good people. 
Jesus' friend of bad people. Jesus' friend of wicked people. Jesus' friend of the worst of a culture he dined with. And that's what he did for us on the cross. He brought bad types to him, not good types. The good types were the antagonists in the story, the ones that crucified him, the ones that, that were offended, the ones that hated him. It's the, it's the terrible, who realize that they're wretched on the side that flock to Christ and who love him for what he's done. So, so see that as we're seeing just a glimpse here today, whether it's the law side, law versus love thing, or just reminding ourselves of that love in a more proactive level, part of the remedy here to feeling distant from Jesus is just reminding yourself that you are, in fact, not distant at all. That in him you move and you think and love and have your being as a Christian. He's closer than you feel. His shed blood has not said, now you have to feel close to me. His shed blood has said, no, now you are close to me. It's, it's a statement of reality. Whether you feel it or not, it's true. And notice here how, you know, she's not thinking about the law. She's just thinking about his body. You see how practical this stuff really gets when you dig deep. Is wh- Where does she go when she's separated? She thinks about his body. When you're separated, if you feel this perceived separation from God, where do you go? What do you think about? Is it about trying harder or is it about resting more in his love? Very different places, the latter of which will, will kind of re-save you and freshly save, the former of which will just send you into hell, all of us, because we won't be trusting in him, we'll be trusting in ourselves. So where do you go with your mind? Again, here is thinking about the, the precious body of Christ that was nailed to a cross for our sins that we especially heighten and celebrate here on Good Friday this coming Holy Week. So just go to him then. Verses 6, 2 to 3, uh, she knows where he is. Uh, like, like the church knows where Jesus is. In 6, 2, it says, I know where my beloved is. He's in the garden. In the same way the church knows. We know that Jesus and salvation is not in the city. Christ was crucified outside the city. The Bible is clear to say that in Hebrews 13 to suggest kind of right in the narrative that it's not by law we're saved again, it's by grace. We go to the cross. We know that. And, and we forget it all the time. It's why we need the church. We go outside the city to the cross. And Kevin talked about this last week too with Acts 3. Healing happened outside the temple if you were here for that. All these things are important details that we miss. The place Jesus died is crucial. We know this. We've got to remind ourselves of this, that he sets up camp in, in the church. Uh, and after, when he sends his spirit before that, we need to go to the cross. And just like she knows where Solomon is, we have to remember really where we find salvation that is in the cross, not in the cold stone tablets of the law that could only be used to strike us on the head and kill us spiritually before the living God. One final lay here before we close up. It's a really important one. So a couple of big things here on the more encouraging level. Uh, We'll end with more of the warning level, the sober level. Uh, But that is uh, to be ready. Uh, He's returning. Christ is coming for his bride. He's going to knock on the door. It could be any moment, even right before I finish speaking here today, we leave this building. He's coming back for his people. Are you one of them or not? Uh, 5.3 gets at this. Uh, I had, this is her speaking. When he knocks on the door, she says, well, I had put on my garments, how, uh, taken off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. Well, how could I soil them, walk across the dirty floor to go to the door? This is kind of like... Um, you know, oh, I, I, I just put on my robe, I just bathed my feet, now he really wants me to get up and go to the door. Very petty and selfish and silly excuses to not go to him. It'd be like a wife asking her husband to talk, and he says, I just started watching this show, you've got to be kidding me. It, it's kind of like that, the spirit of that. Ridiculous, petty, silly excuses to not go up and actually respond to your husband or to your wife or whatever the case is. Key word here is selfish. And I think an unreadiness for her husband to come to the door. Keyword. And if that's the case, this is a very pronounced biblical theme of unreadiness elsewhere in the Bible where God appears, but some people are not ready for him, and so they're kept out of his presence. Not a one-to-one correlation here with the song because we know that these two get back together, uh, but it's still nonetheless a theme, a prophetic whisper and a warning, a call to being ready in a gospel sense for the return of our Christ. And I want to read a part of a parable in the New Testament that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, verses 6 to 13. He says that there's a bridegroom and ten virgins. Five are foolish. They don't bring enough oil for their lamps. It's nighttime, and 
Five are wise. They bring enough oil for their lamps. And the bridegroom's delayed. They all fall asleep. And then all of a sudden, someone says, he's here. And look what happens. At midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, just go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Key word there, I don't know you relationally. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour of Christ's return. So much to say here, uh, but I want to I read this as, as a clear, correlative, complementary passage and idea to what's going on poetically in Song 5, is that there is a return, and there's a watchfulness that we're called to that some of us are very engaged in and some of us aren't, but it's this call to the church, call to, vir- call to people who know that he's a bridegroom, so they know that there's, there's something true about the gospel here, but one of the stringest warnings we get in the Bible is it's possible to know him but not really know him at the same time. One of the scariest things you'll ever read in the Bible. It's possible, the Bible says, to kind of know him in the right levels and look like you're saved, but be fully unsaved on the inside at the same time. So the question is, the Bible is, check your hearts. Is that you or not? Where are you with him? Do you know him? Here's the ultimate question. Do you know him through the gospel or not? Do you know him through the bloody cross or in some other way? Do you, and only you can be honest with your own heart about this. And I encourage you to have those conversations with your spouses or your friends, other people in the community here at Hiawatha and your community groups. Be honest and raw and really ask that question. It's one of the greatest, most productive questions you can ask spiritually about yourself. But only you can be, know for sure what, what you're really feeling right now as I say this. And, and it's a gut check. It's a heart check. Do you really know? When he comes back, if he came back right here in this room, what would be your ultimate feeling? Joy, happiness, excitement, knowing that there's no more barrier between you and him, so there's no more shame? Or would you feel ashamed? Would you feel like I've been putting on a show or a charade? Uh, fooling people uh, in, into thinking that I've been one thing when I'm, when I'm actually not. I've been living a double life my whole life. I'm kind of a, looking like a Christian here, uh, but I go home and I'm completely, uh, completely different. Never talk to him, never have a relationship with him, never excited to know him. I don't have that gospel readiness. I'm not spiritually awake. All, all those things, if, and again, we're all going to have some of that. This isn't a call to perfection. It's just a call to, where are you going? Are you like the wise virgins or the foolish ones? Uh, do you have enough oil in your lamps? Are you whining like the, the woman is here in, this, in the song about, oh, I, I just cleaned my feet. Like, wah, you know? But, it, it, but that's just us, you know, sometimes, spiritually speaking, when God is calling us to himself and expressing truth, what the gospel is, we just complain about what that's going to cost our lives or something, putting other things before him. So many questions we can ask that are all appropriate, but just have those types of things in your mind as, as we close. Draw near. Uh, be eager and excited for his return. Draw near. Uh, number three is big here too. Is the center of your spirituality in the city or the garden? In other words, in the law or the cross. And I think that's really the, the, the crux of the issue. When Christ comes back, there's going to be a lot of people who th- thought they were Christians, but they were really faux Christians. They were people that were just trying to be good people and that did it in the name of Christ. But they didn't actually come to the cross and say, I'm a ruined sinner, save me. They never did that. It's very common. I'm guessing there's at least several of you here for which that's true. It's a very, very common thing. And if that's the case, I hope you feel loved by God because he has you here for a reason to hear this today. This is not coincidence. This is how he speaks through his word. So he's calling, he's beckoning you. Lay down your crowns. Lay down your resumes. Lay down all that can be counted to your credit. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, everything good he ever did, he counted as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection. If you don't say that, we're thinking in a non-distinct Christian manner. All the good things you've ever done outside your faith in Christ, you don't consider them just trash and garbage for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ your Lord and the power of his resurrection through his sufferings, through his death, and saying, that's how I get back to God. 
then it, there's danger, especially, it depends how severe that is, of course. There's a spectrum there, but the danger is we're slipping way off the path into moralism and religiosity and that we will be like the foolish virgins on that day who don't have enough oil and we don't have the faith, in other words, the trust in God and we will be shut out of God's presence forever like the rest of the damned. And we thought we were in. But do you have that gospel readiness? There are those who in Song 5 language will, will stay in the house and never go to the door. They will complain about their clean feet. They will not take the oil and they will never enter the banquet. And this call for Christians and non-Christians alike, I don't care where you are spiritually, the call is make Jesus your king. Make him your true Solomon. Make him your bridegroom. See him as the lover of your souls, not your boss, not your employer. Though he is Lord, though he can say whatever he wants to us and we need to obey, he, he is ultimately, the cross shows us this, a lover, not a slave master. You get to dine at his table. You're adopted into his family. That's what he's done. It's crazy, crazy good stuff that we just take for granted. He's not telling you what to do on a daily basis and saying, go try harder. He's saying, no, act as though you're my son, my daughter, not my employee that I see once a year for a performance review. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace in the gospel today through Song of, five, Song of Solomon 5, a little bit of 6. <clears throat> thank you for loving us to the uttermost. Thank you for dying for our sins, for being ruddy in the, in the strictest sense of the word, for being ruddy, bloodied, uh, f- full of red color on a cross for us. We adore that about your body because without that, we're all hellbound. Thank you for substituting yourself for us on a cross. Thank you for doing it outside the city so we'd never be confused that you die, but also ask us to be good at the same time. Ask us to do a lot for you, which is what we'd see narratively if you did die within the city walls. But scriptures are clear. You died outside the city to show us that there's a new way, a different way, a new covenant, a new testament that's different than the old. Though the old pointed to the new, it's, it's qualitatively different based on grace not based on works. So we thank you, God, that the story tells that to us clearly and even gives us a a dreamlike, poetic whisper of it through the lens of Song of Solomon 5 and 6. Help us to respond out of joy today and leave here uh, free, maybe for the first time from our sins in Christ. Amen.